Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast, Tuesday Theology Edition. At Scotts Hill, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So on Tuesday nights, our pastors teach a class focused on topics within systematic theology. They do this to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. This podcast is a recording of that teaching session. Enjoy! Tonight we're covering two chapters. We're covering chapters 11 and 12. And one of the chapters that we cover, chapter 11, is not going to be a difficult chapter. I'm going to do it a little bit differently tonight by just asking you some questions and have you participate and answer all of those questions. I hear somebody's ESPN going off, Sports Center. Okay. I heard that. Yeah, I know that song, man. Uh, and LSU has a new coach, Brian Kelly from Notre Dame. Yes. So I'm glad to, I'm an LSU fan, so I'm glad to hear that. So we're going to be asking some questions. I'm going to be asking you some questions tonight and give you the opportunity to be able to answer those. Chapter 11 is just dealing with the doctrine of man. But then we get to chapter 12, we're going to be dealing with biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, And that may be one that can be a little bit challenging as we walk through that because there's so many different views when it comes to the distinctiveness of the roles between men and women. And we're going to jump into that, and we're going to actually look at why that is such a huge struggle in our culture today. But let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you have given to men and women in helping us to discern what your word says, how we can understand it in a systematic approach. And Father, as we continue to study your word, I pray that, Father, you would continue to teach us about yourself and teach us about who we are. And Father, enable us to understand, even in a greater way, your plan of redemption for humanity. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Father, as we're preparing to go into the Christmas season, we can't help but think about what Paul called in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9.15, your indescribable gift who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray in his name, amen. All right, as you look in chapter 11, we're gonna be dealing, as I said, with what we considered the doctrine of man. Now, one of the things that Grudem does right away, he asks the question, and he says, why is it that some oppose the use of the term man to refer to humanity? So when he talks about this issue of referring to humanity as mankind, some people oppose that. Why is it today that people oppose that term? (laughs) What did she say? They oppose everything. Okay. Yeah. We're living in a council culture. If it doesn't fit the narrative, it is opposed. But it does seem to be that some people are very sensitive about why do you call it mankind? We should call it maybe humankind, or we should call it persons, or we should just call it humanity, or whatever. Some people are really sensitive to the phrase mankind. And it seems as though if you call it that, we're leaving something out. Now, here's the next question. Why does Grudem suggest that we continue to use the word man to refer to humanity. Do you remember? Because God uses it. And we can see that it is a divinely chosen word in the Hebrew. It's Adam, which also is a name for Adam, which refers to Adam right there, and uh, which means dirt. Thank you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> it is interesting. Now, now here's what I help pe- women understand. You get so upset about calling it mankind. The word Adam refers to man. It refers to the dirt of the ground. Men were made from the dirt of the ground. But ladies, women were made from a rib from him. And so that's the excuse why men never want to take a bath, okay? Because boys and men, they don't mind being kind of grimy, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, the the thing is because God uses it and because it's a divinely chosen word and we see it through the course of Scripture, just because cultural things change... 
Just because mindsets among humanity may change doesn't mean we change the language of Scripture. Now, we have different paraphrases. We have different translations of Scripture that help us better understand things. But when it comes down to those issues, what we do is we walk in conjunction with what God's Word teaches in that. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this whole concept of creation. And so as we look at it, we want to look at this question that just simply says, why was man created? To glorify God. Man was created for the glory of God. And when we say man, we're talking about men and women, okay? So let's just understand that. We're talking about mankind. We're talking about both men and we're talking about women. So when God has created us, he created it for his own glory. Think about the universe, how vast the universe is. When you think about our Milky Way, which is our galaxy, if you travel the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 125,000 years to reach the other end of just our galaxy. That's incredible. That shows the vastness of the universe. And when you see that there are millions and billions of stars and universes, every bit of that is to display the glory of God. Every bit of it. And every time you and I look out at the stars, that's an opportunity for us to glorify God. Every time we hold an infant baby and we look at the, the intricacies of that human life, that's an opportunity for us to glorify God. Every time we look at the ocean and see that the waves come, but they always keep their border, that's an opportunity for us to glorify God. Everything that he has created is to bring glory to himself. And when we look at those things, we're not to worship creation in the midst of it, but we're to worship the creator who spoke every bit of it into being. So when God created you, he created you to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. The shorter Westminster Catechism, very first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so your creation, you being here, is a testimony of glorifying God, enjoying him, and here's the other side of it, him taking delight in you. That's an amazing thing, that the creator of the universe delights in you. And so we exist to glorify God. Here's another one. Did God create us because he needed us? No. He didn't need us. God was complete and satisfied in himself. Within the Trinity, there was perfect unity, isn't there? Within the Trinity, there's perfect community. God was never lonely. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were complete in one another. There was never a point where they thought, wow, we just really need somebody. They didn't need anyone. The fact that he created us was just simply out of his good pleasure and his desire. So God did not create us because he needed us. Secondly, what is our purpose in life? And we just talked about that, to glorify him and to enjoy him. Now, here's the thing. God created us not only that our lives would glorify him, but he created us so that we would enjoy him, that we would come to know him, that we would come to love him, that we would come to have joy in God. And this is why we are created. When you go back to the creation account, and we're going to look at that a little bit later, God created us for that purpose. Now, the next section deals with man created in the image of God. And so as we deal with this, we have to ask the question, what does it mean that we are created in the Im image of God? Now, this is where we're going to take some time, and you're just going to be able to give me some answers to that. When somebody says we're created in the image of God, what does that mean? We're created to be similar to him. We're created in his likeness. Okay, that's good. What else? Yes. Okay. Is God emotional? 
Give me some illustrations in Scripture where we see the emotions of God. Okay, he's jealous. We see that Jesus wept. He wept over his friend Lazarus. He wept over um, Jerusalem. Can you grieve the heart of God? Okay, yes. Can you bless the heart of God? Yes. Does God take delight? In it? There's, there's psalms that talk about God singing over us, that God delighting over us. Yeah, God is an emotional. He is emotional. He takes great joy and pleasure in things. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can quench the Spirit of God. And so all of these things can only happen with a person that has emotions. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's right. David, David was a man after God's own heart. And we see also that God can be angry. And his anger is always right. It's always righteous. It's never out of control in every bit of that. So what are some other ways that it says when, when people say you're created in the image of God, what else does it mean? Okay. Yeah. It goes back to kind of some of those communicable attributes, right? We can talk about that. The incommunicable attributes are those things that we are not like God in, and the communicable attributes are the things we are like God in. Here's the thing that when we talk about being created in the image of God, it is his likeness and to represent him. You see, the image of God also means to be image bearers of God. That we are the ones that are carrying in our lives the very character and the nature and a picture of who God is. We are to reflect on earth the character of God. Now, going back to your point, animals can't do that. Birds can't do that. Uh, fish can't do that. Think about all of a creation. No other aspect of creation can mimic the character of God. But we can. And so when we're created in the image of God, it means that we are to be the image bearers. We are to be the representations on earth of God's character and his goodness. So before the fall... When Adam and Eve were created, they were created to bear the likeness of God. Now, here's how the devil is so deceptive. He comes to Eve, and he, he says to her that God knows the day that you eat of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be what? Like God. Weren't they already like God? They were all created in the image of God. And here's where the devil is so deceiving. Something that they already enjoyed that no other aspect of creation enjoyed was the fact that they were in the image of God. He comes and says, you'll be like God. But really, you know what they really wanted to be? God. That's it. And that's where the enemy, every single temptation that comes from Satan, is for the purpose of putting you in charge and taking God off the throne. Think about that. Every temptation is to fill your desire and not to submit to the God of the universe. So when Satan tempts us, there comes a point in our life in that moment that we forget God and we put ourselves in that place. And so being created in the image of God is that likeness and that representation that's unlike any other of creation in all the universe. Here's the second one. Does the fall of man take away the image of God in humanity? Adam and Eve were created in the image. They sinned. There are consequences from the sin. Did that take away the image of God in them? It distorts it. That's exactly right. Sin distorts the image of God. Now, here's the thing that we have to realize. Even in the sinfulness of humanity, we are still uniquely different than all other aspect of creation. Even in our brokenness and our sinfulness, we still bear the image of God. Even though it's distorted, even though it is unclear, 
and you can't see it, no matter the sinfulness of a person, they're still created and there's still some of the image of God in them. Now, here's another question. How does redemption in Christ progressively recover more of God's image in man? How does the redemption of Christ, I'm created in the image of God, I'm, I'm not following Christ, I'm living my own life, but then all of a sudden I hear the gospel, I submit my life to Jesus Christ, my life is transformed from the inside out. How does that redemptive process progressively make me more and more clearly seen in the character and the image of God? Okay, there's that intimate, personal relationship that we have with God that we begin to understand and spiritually discern. Our hearts become transformed. Yeah, I mean, have you known people who were godless people that they get saved and then you've seen a transformation in their life? Yeah, I'm glad somebody said me. <laughs> <laughs> He's just not looking. <laughs> but no, that should be true of every believer. And Emory's right. That's called the process of sanctification that we're going to look at a little bit later. Here's what I want you to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And I want to show you this passage. It's very, very important. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he begins by saying this. You got it? He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this is actually where we get our purpose statement for Scotts Hill, joining God in his work of transforming lives. That flows out of this passage. And it's because the fact that he says we all, first of all, it's inclusive. All believers are in the process of sanctification. And through the redemptive work of Christ, we all are being transformed, which is in a passive voice, which means it's something being done to us. You don't transform yourself. I can't transform you. We can't transform anyone. Only God can do the work of transformation. That's why we join him in his work of transforming lives. It's also in the present tense, which means it's something that keeps happening. It's not something that happens at the moment of salvation and you're utterly transformed. This is a process for the rest of your life. And it says that we are being transformed into the same image. What is the image? The image of Jesus. We're being transformed to be more like Jesus. Then he says, from glory to glory, from one stage to another. So for the believer, listen, the rest of your life is the process of transformation so where every single year you should be looking and smelling and acting and talking more like Jesus. And then that's that part of that redemptive process that the world sees. Now, I have to tell you, when I turned 60 years old, it was the only time in my life where I felt discouraged. And it wasn't because I turned 60 and I'm thinking I'm getting old, but I was discouraged. And here's why. I thought by 60, I should be much further along spiritually than I was. And that grieved me because I'm thinking, wow, why am I still struggling with the same things, the same thoughts, the same weaknesses, why am I still having to die to these things? Haven't I, shouldn't I be to a place where those are no longer the struggles of my life? But that's still the process of sanctification. 
because that is going to happen until we stand in glory. Sanctification is the middle of two bookends. The first one is justification when I come to faith in Christ. I'm justified. I'm counted as righteous in Jesus. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not of my own. It comes from the Lord Jesus. So I'm counted as righteous. The other bookend is not justification, but glorification. That's when we stand before the Lord and we have resurrected bodies and we're perfect in every sense. And I'm going to talk about that Sunday. But between those two bookends is the grueling daily process of sanctification. That's where God takes every single thing in our life to make us like Jesus. You know, that person on Market Street that's not going fast enough. You know, the person who cuts you off in a line. You know, the, the telemarketer that keeps calling your phone and you're tired of it. All the things, your spouse who gets on your nerves from time to time, or maybe every day, I don't know. But those things are what God uses to make us more like Jesus. Now, here's the thing I have to ask myself. Am I more like Jesus this year than I was last year? Sometimes I can say, yeah. Sometimes I can say no. But the goal is to keep on moving. And in the redemptive process, that's where the image of God can be seen more clearly in our lives. And so we're never too young and we're never too old to keep the process of sanctification going. And that, that is just plotting, isn't it? It's a willful choice every single day. So as redeemed people, we are being changed from glory to glory as the Lord. Now, here's another one. When will there be complete restoration of God's image in us? Yeah. Either when we're in glory and we receive our resurrected body or when the Lord Jesus comes back. All things will be made new. All things are going to be restored. What God's plan was for in the garden will be restored at the return of Christ. And this Sunday, I'm going to talk about the fact that we are living between two kingdoms and we're living between two times. We're in this stage that we call, as believers and theologians call it, the already but not yet. We're already redeemed, but we're not yet totally restored. We're already sons and daughters of God, but we do not yet acknowledge and understand all that means. And so we're already counted as righteous, but we're not yet experiencing a, the righteousness of Christ in its fullness. So it's the already and not yet. We're kind of in between these two things. But when Christ comes back, everything will be restored to the way God desires it to be. Now, let me just ask you, am I the only one that seems to be living in these days that just keeps crying, Jesus, just come anytime? I'm, I'm just like, man, just come back. What about your grandkids? That'll be the best thing that ever happened to them. Come back, Jesus. And, uh, and I'm just like, wow, I am so ready for him to come back. Um, because even all of creation, as Romans 8 says, groans for the redemption of the sons of God. Why? Because all things will be restored and to be made new. The sinfulness of humanity has plunged the entire universe into destruction. And as a result of that, even creation groans. So let's go to the next one. How are we specifically like God? We talked about that. He mentions four things in here. How are we specifically like God? Moral aspects. Somebody tell me, what does that mean? When we're like God in our moral aspects, what are we talking about when we talk about moral aspects? Yeah, we know right and wrong. Here's the interesting thing about that. Sociologists will tell you that every single culture in the world, no matter how primitive or how advanced they might seem to be, they all know and all have a set of codes understanding right and wrong. 
Even the most primitive tribes have codes that they live by within their tribes or their people. They know what's right and what's wrong. And so there is this moral compass within all of us. Now, what happens is that that consciousness can become seared, but we do have this moral capacity of knowing right and wrong. Animals don't do that, do they? They operate by instincts, but they don't necessarily know what's right and what's wrong. They just operate by the way that they've created. Only humanity has moral aspects. How about the second one? Spiritual aspects. How would you explain that? Yes. Again, sociologists have found that there's no culture on this planet that does not worship something. Even though it may be distorted, even though it may even be demons, there's an understanding that all people worship something. I love the story about the atheist who was talking to his five-year-old son one day. He said, son, you need to understand we don't believe in God. And he explained all the reasons why they didn't believe in God. And he asked his little son, he says, do you have any questions? He said, daddy, I have one question. He said, what is it? He says, does God know we don't believe in him? And so, you know, from the mouths of children and infants, God has ordained his praise to silence the foe and the avenger. Um, Psalm 8. And so what we see is that there are the spiritual aspects and the fact that we are immortal beings. Now you say, well, wait a minute, we die. Yeah, but our soul lives. And we're going to look at that in a moment, okay? How about this third one? Mental aspects. Somebody said that about the intellect earlier. We have the intellect. We have the capacity to think. I love what he says in this book. Chimpanzees are not going to be gathering in a room like this to discuss these things. Now, some of you may look a little apish, but I mean, uh, chimpanzees don't do that. Elephants don't gather in a conference to decide things. They don't have the capability of making mental aspects of the, the intellect and be able to discern. And then the last one, relational aspects. I mean, think about the relationships that we have with one another. The animal world doesn't really have that, do they? Does it? I mean, there are few animals in the animal kingdom that actually mate for life. Foxes will do that. Some other animals will do that. But for the most part, they're not relationally driven. They're just driven by the instincts. Now, if you watch any Disney movies, you see all the emotions and the relationships that happen between two dogs and a long string of spaghetti between the two of them. You know, I don't even know what one that was. Lady and a Tramp. There you go. And, uh, and we see all of these movies that capture all of this emotion with these animals. But you and I know that doesn't happen. Now, can your dog appreciate you? Yeah. Can your cat appreciate you? They don't appreciate anything. <laughs> so just kidding. Are you a cat lover? Yes. Okay. All right. I'm done. <laughs> uh, but anyway, what, what um, somebody said that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be in charge of all the cats. <laughs> I said, that would certainly be like hell. So, uh, <laughs> but no, I, listen, we had a cat growing. My, my little girl, Leslie, wanted a cat. We got her a cat. And that cat, I was the only person that cat came to. I was the only one. And um, so I had to feed her and pet her and all that stuff. Uh, but then I think a coyote got her. So, um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I think so, yeah. And my neighbors came over and said, can we put signs up all over the no neighbor? No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. We're not going to look for her. I think a coyote got her. So I don't know. But anyway, the relational aspects, I'm just getting deeper in trouble with you. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to shut up. Somebody said, you have such great tact. I, there's no tact in that tonight. Okay. Relational aspects. So we have that. Okay. So um, these are the ways that we're like God in all of these ways, uh, except God is extremely infinite in all of that, and we're not. Now, he talks about the essential nature next of, um, oh, I'm sorry. How does, this is real important. How does our understanding of God's image bring great dignity to humanity? How does our understanding of the fact that we're created in the image of God bring dignity to humanity? Yeah. You know, how does this help us and how should we view all people? Every single human being 
is created in the image of God. Absolutely. And I think that's the key to that. When we understand that we are created in the image of God, that of all of creation, God has made us to reflect himself and to be able to enjoy him. Now, God could have made you a roach, which would be a despicable thing, okay? But he created us as human beings, and we created us to reflect his image. And so that means, first of all, as you were saying, the dignity that I can even understand in my own self is the fact that, wow, God's created me to be like him. That's incredible. But also, when we look at it, we view all people like that. Every single human being is created in the image of God and is of uncalculable worth. Okay? You, you are worth so much to God. That's why abortion is such a hideous crime in the eyes of God. Because here's a human being that's created in the image of God in taking an individual's life. That's why murder is so offensive to God. That's why racism is so offensive to God. That's why elitism is so offensive to God. Because every single person is created equal in the image of God. Now, not all people are redeemed. Now, we live in a world where people like to say, all people are children of God. That's not true. That is an unbiblical statement. It sounds good in our culture. Oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. Only those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have their names written in the Lamb's book of life or children of God. The judgment will bear that out. All people are created by God. All people have the image of God, whether it's distorted or not, but not all people are children of God. So we have to make a distinction between the two. And even in that, there cannot be pride because it's only by his grace that I stand where I am. It's only by his grace. And it's only by his grace where you stand where you are. It's not that nothing that any of us has done to earn it. And so even more dignity comes in the sense that not only am I created in the image of God, but by God's grace has been shed upon me. And not only am I created in his image, but I am his son, I'm his daughter. And he takes great delight in me. And so it helps me to see all people from that perspective. And no matter where they come from, no matter what their background is, if you really want to destroy racism in the world, we come to the place where we say all lives matter. All lives matter. Now, do black lives matter? Yes. Do Asian lives matter? Yes. Do Native American lives matter? Yes. All lives matter because all lives are created in the image of God. And so that will transform, I think, a lot of our thinking when it comes to this whole issue of the image of God. And I know that it's changed my view over the years because I have to look at people, no matter how wretched they may be, they still are image bearers. They're just not redeemed. So what's the answer? The answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel. The answer always goes back that that's their greatest need because that's the greatest need of all of humanity. Now, here's the next thing. We're talking about the essential nature of man. He talks about three groups here, three different. He talks about trichotomy. What does man consist of? Body, soul, spirit. And so many people will say this, uh, the, the, the view should be like a trichotomy. It, it's three parts of humanity. Then he talks about the dichotomy which is body, soul, or body, spirit. Um, and then he talks about the third one is monism, which is body. There's just a body, and there's no separation between the two. Now, some people are going to be 
uh, trichotomist in the sense that they talk about body, soul, spirit. Because the scripture talks about that, doesn't it? We find times where it talks about the body, it talks about the soul, and it talks about the spirit. But you never find body, soul, spirit all in one phrase. You might find sometimes body and soul or body and spirit. Um, we'll find that body, soul, mind, body, soul, mind, strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we'll find that. So his position is the fact that really it's a, more of a dichotomy. But it really doesn't matter because the word soul and spirit can be used interchangeably. Um, and his argument is it makes more sense to hold the, the, the position of dichotomy instead of trichotomy because the Christian would not hold to monism because we know that there's more than just a body. There's the material. So here's my question. What, do you, what were your thoughts among this as you thought through this? And which of the three, I would say probably the two, do you most likely align with? Trichotomy or dichotomy? Any thoughts? Okay, that's a great point. Yeah, when you look at the, the, the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, you could look at it that way. Anybody else? Yeah, and, and I think that's the bigger point of that because if the soul and the spirit can be interchangeable and you see it used in different ways and then you can see, yeah, that's a great point in Hebrews chapter four um, where it talks about the word of God is sharper and, and living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it cuts to through the soul and the spirit. Now, sometimes they'll say that they'll use those together to emphasize and not necessarily to make a distinction. But the biggest thing is that we need to understand that we're unity, uh, um, that, that we're made up of more than just a body. Now, you can define soul and spirit as different things. Um, and I don't think that this is a primary issue um, necessarily. It could be a secondary issue. But the, the thing that we do know is that our soul, that our spirit, that we know that we're made up of body. We know that we're physical, but we also know that the physical part of us will one day cease and that our spirit or our soul is going to live forever. Um, and we know that you remember the old saying that when the person died, they said they gave up the ghost. That means that their spirit has left their body. And we know that that takes place. Um, we could debate all day whether soul refers to the personality, the spirit refers to that immortal aspect of us that lives forever, or that the body is just a physical. We could talk about all of those different things. Here's the thing. The scripture doesn't necessarily really define it perfectly for us. While it is used in multiple ways, sometimes we get in trouble when we go beyond the bounds of scripture and tried to create something and uh, maybe even a position that's not even there. And so when it comes down to times like this, it really doesn't matter, I think, trichotomy or dichotomy. All three of those exist within both of those statements, whether it's body, soul, spirit, or body, soul, and spirit, or, or spirit. I think that we can get in a lot of debates, I think that your question is, does it really matter? It does matter from the standpoint that we are complex beings and that we do have a soul or spirit. And um, I think that what we need to do is just say, yeah, there's a number of different debates on this, but here's the bottom line in this, is that God has created us with a spirit. And apart from Christ, our spirit is dead. In Ephesians chapter two, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then verse four, but God, who being rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus. And so our spirits are alive at that point, or our soul, okay? So I think that that's a good way to look at that. Okay, so we've just dealt with that. Now let's get into the real fun stuff, okay? You ready? We're gonna look at man and as male and female, okay? 
man as male and female. He breaks this down into three parts. Two of these parts are not controversial. One has created a lot of problems in our culture and in our churches today. And in fact, this has even caused division in a lot of churches. So when he breaks it down into three parts, this is what he does. He begins by talking about harmonious interpersonal relationships. We're going to look at that in a moment. What does that mean, harmonious interpersonal relationships? God created men and women to have a personal relationship with one another that is built on harmony and unity, okay? Second is equality in personhood and importance, that God has created both man and woman, both equal and very valuable in importance. And then the third part is the difference in role and authority. And this is the one that a lot of people have gotten into arguments over, divisions over, churches even divided over this issue when it comes to what are the roles between men and women, and are there any distinctively different roles or all things egalitarian in their approach? So what we're gonna do for this point is we're gonna look at scripture. So here's what I want you to do. I want us to go back to the beginning I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So in looking at this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And of course, this is a very, this is the, the chapter 1 always in Genesis gives an overview of creation. Chapter 2 goes in a more detailed of that aspect of creation. Then chapter three, of course, deals with the fall and the rest of the scripture all the way up to Revelation chapter 21 is about the brokenness of humanity. So God said, let us make man in our image. Notice this is plural. God, Elohim, is actually a plural name for God. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this speaks of the Trinity even there. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them men and women have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth then he goes on so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this passage. First of all, God clarified sexuality from the very beginning. He made a man and he made a woman. God clarified that sexuality is to be in a heterosexual relationship from the very beginning. Now, many people who are um, supporters of homosexuality will say that Jesus never stated anything negative about homosexual lifestyle, nor did he ever have anything to say about homosexual relationships. Well, Jesus didn't come out and say that, but in Matthew chapter 19, he was asked about divorce. He said, it was not so from the beginning, for in the beginning, God created them male and female. Jesus clarified once and for all God's intention with sexuality, that it is to be a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman, and that is to be for life. Okay, so God says that. Secondly, God clarified gender in the garden. There was no gender dysphoria with God. There was a binary choice, male and and female. There wasn't any transitory nature between these um, sexes. There was male and female. Now, here's the other thing, that God divinely appointed to every human being that they would be male or female. God never makes a mistake. God doesn't bring confusion. When we live in a broken world and we live in sinfulness, then all of those things come into play. 
But when you go back to the garden, it is very clear that it is to be a heterosexual relationship in a binary gender, either male or female. Here's the third thing. God created male and female for personal, physical, and spiritual relationships. So when God created Adam and Eve, he created them for a personal relationship, for a physical relationship, because within that context, God designed sex to take place within a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and there was the spiritual nature of it as well. So when God created Adam and Eve, it was a perfect world. There was a perfect relationship with a perfect man and a perfect woman. Then he says this, God created male and female in his image, equal in personhood and importance. Both of them created equal. Man was not superior to woman. Woman was not superior to man. They were created equal and of equal importance before God. So there were no battles of the sexes early in the garden. That only happened after sin, when they started blaming each other. Isn't that amazing that God comes to, to, to each of them and, and, he, and he comes to, to, the, to the woman and she says, well, first he comes to Adam. And because he always holds Adam responsible first because he's the man, we're gonna talk about that in a moment, of authority in his role. And he says, Adam, what have you done? Adam says, this woman whom you gave me. So who did he ultimately blame? God. I was doing fine with the elephants and the giraffes. But you brought this woman along and she calls me to do this. And then he looks at the woman. Well, it was the serpent who did it. And Satan, he didn't have anybody to blame. Well, he didn't care. But you see, there goes the blame game. But before that, it was perfect in all of that. Then it says this in Genesis. And this is in Genesis um, chapter 2. Um, which, let me see. 18, that's it. Yeah. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, so Adam's in the garden. He's by himself. The first negative spoken. Up to this point, God has only said after every aspect of his creation, it is good. It is good. It is good. Then he comes to verse 18. He says, it is not good. It is not good that a man should be alone. Boy, I give testament to that. My wife's gone this week. It is not good that I'm alone. Um, and most of you men can agree with that. But God says, so I'll make him a helper. Here's what's interesting. See that word helper? I'll make a helper fit for him. Here's what it means in the Hebrew. Same, but different. I'm going to make one, somebody just like you, Adam, but she'll be different. The same, but different. Same inequality. Same in the image of God. Same in importance, but different physically and different with respect to roles. Now, the differences in the responsibility is where people have a struggle with today between men and women. And the differences in the roles and responsibility between men and women as you read through that chapter, he says, are apparent. They were apparent in the creation aspect. They're apparent through the pages of scripture. We're not going to jump into all that because we don't have time. But here's what I want you to see. This is what we call complementarianism. Okay? Complementarianism is simply this. Men and women are created in the image of God and equal in personhood and importance. Yet with distinctively different roles for the purpose of complementing one another in the context of marriage. Now, we're all created equal. We all have um, value, the same value, but we have different roles specifically when it comes to men and women in the life of the family and in the life of the church. 
And so that's called complementarianism. Complementarianism is this, that even though we're distinctively different in our roles, our giftedness and our callings should complement one another and not compete with one another. And in the garden, there was perfect complementarianism. Adam knew what his responsibility was. Eve knew what her responsibility was. There's interesting that in the garden, we don't see anything about what Adam's personality was like. We don't see anything about what Eve's personality was like. We don't see anything about their giftedness. All we see is that God created them distinctively different for the purpose of completing one another. Now, here's the strongest difficulty in all marriages and relationships, is many times we don't end up completing one another, we end up competing with one another. And then what happens is that undermines God's desire for this complementary aspect to our relationships. So let's look at what is a man's responsibility? A man's responsibility, he's responsible for a loving servant leadership of his family as he partners with his wife to fulfill God's call in their marriage. Notice how I said that, loving servant leadership. Biblical leadership is always from the bottom up, and it's always service. It's always for the other person's good. And in the garden, we can see that Adam had a loving, serving leadership to, for, the, for the welfare of his family. Now, the woman's role is responsible for coming alongside her husband, encouraging, and I love the word challenging, and helping him lead the family through her God-ordained gifts. Now, some people say that if you're a complementarian, then you're saying that women are not useful or they're not seen valuable or they don't have spiritual gifts. There's nothing further from the truth of that. Because when God did this in the garden, it was perfect. And then what happened in the garden, there is this giftedness and all of this for the purpose of completing one another. But here's what we have to see. The curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction to new roles. When Adam and Eve sinned, complementarianism was removed. Let me show you. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman, this is when God is given the curse, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I remember when my wife was giving birth to Ryan, I'll never forget, she said, I am so mad at Eve right now. Um, In pain you shall bring forth children. Listen to this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here's the curse. In some translations it says, your desire shall be for your husband. You might say, how's that a curse? You might say, well, you don't know my husband. (laughs) No, it means your desire shall be to be over your husband. That's what it means in Hebrew. Your desire shall be to usurp your husband's authority. That will be your desire. And he will rule over you. Neither of these was God's desire in a garden. It wasn't the desire of a woman to usurp her husband's authority. It wasn't God's desire for a man to rule over his wife from the top down. It was always God's desire for a loving servant leadership in the home and a mutual submission to one another as your giftedness came together to complement one another. But let me tell you what the curse brings. Ever since that time, we see this laid out. The fall distorts complementarianism. Number one, feminism. What happens? We see in our world this battle between men and women, and you see this rise of feminism where women want to be in charge. I read one famous feminist who said that husbands, men, are a biological necessity but a psychological absurdity. That's the position for a lot of feminists in the world today. But not only does it bring about feminism, it brings about chauvinism. 
The opposite of that are men trying to dominate over their wives and demanding that their wives submit to them. I'm going to tell you, men, if you ever demand your wife submit to you, you have just told me that you do not love her in a servant way. Because if you're loving your wife in a servant manner and leading her like Christ, submission won't be an issue. Because a woman doesn't have a problem submitting to a man who would die for her. And I also heard this, no man has ever been killed by his wife while doing the dishes. So um, feminism, chauvinism, and do you know what that morphed into? Egalitarianism. Here's what egalitarianism says. We're created in the image of God. We're created equal, but there are no distinct roles between men and women. There are no differences in our roles. And our culture today has been inundated with egalitarianism. And men have been told to become more feminine. I always get nervous when a man says, this is my feminine side. I always get nervous about that. And when you want to masculate men, and then you want to butch up women, make them more manlike, every bit of that is contrary to God's intention. And so what happens is we have churches today now that are dividing over this whole issue. Let me just tell you, our position at Scotts Hill is we are complementarian in our approach. Our desire is to, to help men to be the spiritual leaders of their home from a servant model like Jesus and to love their families well and to see the uniqueness and the differences that we have and that women in the life of Scotts Hill have opportunities to use their giftedness in the in the course of the body, you can look around our church and you see all the different positions that women have in the life of our church. But there is a distinctiveness in that. Now, here's the thing I want you to see, that redemption in Christ reaffirms the creative order. When we come to a relationship with Jesus, then he brings about this understanding of this related order. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at that. Verses 25 through 26, he's speaking to the men. The Apostle Paul is, is speaking to the group of Christians in Ephesus. And these are people who are not, these are Gentiles. And he's telling them something that is so radical it blows their mind. Here's what he says to the men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He says, men, love your wives. This was a culture where men did not love their wives. Women were seeing nothing more than just property. A little bit, maybe a little bit lower than the horse, maybe a little bit higher than the dog. But women were seen as property. For him to say, men, love your wives. It was like, what? You want me to love her? Yes, love your wives. Like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's saying, men, it is your responsibility to love your wife the way that Jesus loved the church. Now, this is the opposite. Men have no problem protecting their wives, have no problem providing for their wives. But when it comes to loving, men feel vulnerable in that. But he's saying, you're going to do the harder thing, men. Love your wife. The word love there is agape, which means to seek another person's highest good. And so he's radicalizing these men with this concept of loving their wives. In that world, that was not known. Then he speaks to the women. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body. And he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Ladies, he's giving you the harder thing. He didn't say love your husbands. Women have a natural nurturing aspect to their lives. Loving would be the natural thing to do. Submitting is the harder thing to do because it goes against the curse. And that curse is to usurp your... And the reason submitting is so hard is really hard when you know you're right. <laughs> 
And I've always said, submitting is the woman ducking and letting God hit the man upside the head. But submission is not inferior. It's actually superior because it is a willful choice to lay down your rights, to allow your husband to serve and to lead the family well. Now, when you deal with that concept and you're dealing with this complementarianism, here's what we understand. Men, your word is to love. Women, your word is to submit. In chapter six, children, their word is to obey. There you see the picture for the family. Now, here's what we need to land on. The question of application in the home and in the church. How does complementarianism work in the home and in the church? Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, we have no specific examples for the home in scripture. How does complementarianism work? We don't really have specific examples and here's why. Every couple is different. Every couple has different gifts and different callings. For instance, my wife and I, I, I am the spiritual leader of our home. Men, you will be the one who will give an account for your family, just as God called first Adam to give account to what happened in the garden. By the way, it's what I call the silence of Adam. Eve should never have been the one speaking to the serpent. Adam should have been the one there. She ate of the fruit and handed it to her husband who was with her, is what it says. He did not step up. He did not take the leadership. And as a result of that, there was Eve deceived and Adam sinned because he ate the fruit because he was the one given the command not to eat. And so what ends up happening there is his silence enabled there to be a failure in their relationship. So men, that means this. There's a warning here for us. There's an example here for us to be the spiritual leaders of our home. But here's what scripture doesn't say exactly how that works out. Um, while I'm the spiritual leader of the home, Chris and I have different gifts. And here's what we've learned in our marriage. The things that she is good at, she does. And she compliments me in that. I am terrible with numbers. And finances, I don't, I, I, I've never reconciled a bank statement in my life. Hope I never have to. My wife is really gifted. She has a finance degree. Why would I do that? She's gifted in that. She takes care of all the finances. I don't even know if we have money. She does every bit of it. And so she, I don't even care about it. She's the one that takes care of all that. Now, there are other areas that I'm gifted in, but here's what we do. We figure out how to lean into one another in our giftedness for the purpose of complementing one another in this relationship so we can achieve God's desire for our marriage and for our family together. So that's that complementarian. There's no specific examples for the home. You have to figure out how that works for you and in your home. Here's the second thing. There are specific patterns for the church. When we look at scripture, there are specific patterns when it comes to the distinctiveness of roles within the body of Christ. So when we look at scripture, here's what we see. Pastors or elders um, are reserved to male leadership. We find nowhere in scripture that there's a female elder or female pastor. Nowhere. It's always in the masculine and it's usually in the plural. There's a plurality of elders or pastors in the churches. That's why we only allow men to serve in the capacity of an elder or a pastor at Scott's Hill. Now, there also the issue of deacons or deaconesses. There are various positions when it comes to deacons or deaconesses. Because that is open to interpretation, I believe that a deacon can be a man or it can be a woman. Now, the men minister to the men and the women minister to the women in that capacity. But at Scott's Hill, the way we currently are set up is we only have men to serve as deacons. And we've not made any changes in that because that has been the tradition of the church. But when you look at scripture, there is the opportunity to be able to interpret that as being men and women. Some churches 
um, all their staff are deacons or deaconesses. If you work at the church, whether you're administrative assistant or whatever, you're considered a deaconess. Or if you're on staff and in your mail, you're considered a deacon if you're not a pastor. So that's open. Now, the third thing is this. All believers are to use their spiritual gifts and callings in the life of the body. Men and women serving in all capacities with the exception of elders and deacons at Scott's Hill. So we have women that serve as coordinators. We have women that serve as directors. We have women that serve in a number of different capacities as volunteers. And we want all people in the life of the church to use their giftedness to empower the church. But when it comes to the key leadership of the church, that is reserved for men to serve in the capacity of a pastor or an elder. That is the position for complementarianism. Now, some churches that are egalitarianism say that there's no distinction. Women can serve as pastors. Women can serve as deacons. Women can serve in any capacity in the life of the church. There are egalitarian churches all around us that have that position. But I want you to know that at Scotts Hill, we are complementary in that. And our goal is never to undermine the importance or the value of women is just simply to keep it in a biblical perspective of what God's Word teaches us when it comes to leadership in the life of the church. And so you look around, you will see women serving in all kinds of capacities in the life of the church, but they will not be in a role of a pastor or an elder in the life of our church, or at this point, as a deacon in the life of the church. It doesn't mean that you don't serve and you don't serve well. Now, I said that this was some one of those things that could be kind of controversial in a lot of different churches, but this has worked well for us, and we value all individuals created in the image of God. Um, and every one of us are that. Now, um, the bottom line in all that we do in our relationships is to lean into Christ that he would continue to transform us into his image from glory to glory and to lean into one another that this might be a complementary relationship as we seek to bless the heart of God. Now, the other pastors were glad that I was teaching this tonight. I've got all the tough ones because I'm also going to be dealing with the doctrine of election when we come to the upcoming year as we deal with that. So this is where we are. This is who we are. But when we look at this, you go back to the garden and we see what God's intention is for families, for individuals, and for our worth in him. I'm sorry, I've gone 15 minutes over. Okay? Now, we are not having another one until January. Uh, I don't even know what that date is. Um, Jeff has got all that information. When is it? January 11th. Thank you. January the 11th, we're going to start back. So you get a break between now and then. And I, I just want to say again, thank you for, for being here and working through this stuff. We hope that this podcast was a blessing to you and that you grew in your knowledge of God. If you liked this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your friends and your family on social media so that others can hear the truth of God's word. Till next time.